foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Jonathan Marks. He is professor of politics at Ursinus College. He's the author of Perfection and Disharmony in the Thought of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and he blogs for Commentary Magazine. He has a new book out called Let's Be Reasonable, a conservative case for liberal education. Welcome, Professor Marks. Thank you for having me, Mark. Uh, and thanks, thanks for plugging my Rousseau book. <laughs> sure, sure. Always happy to, 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 to plug um, Jean-Jacques. So, uh, uh, for all the damage he's done, actually. But uh, first, first question, uh, why is it necessary at the present time to make a conservative case for liberal education? I think one reason, and, and, and maybe the main reason at the moment, is that the conservative mood, uh, never that friendly to higher education, has darkened toward it. And I, I think there are reasons for that. Um, some of them have to do with the internals of the conservative movement. Uh, so I think uh, about a piece like the Flight 93 election, written by Michael Anton on the eve of the 2016 election, um, in which he argues that conservatives have so decisively lost the culture war um, that's necessary to do something radical. He compares it to, to rushing the cockpit uh, on a flight that's um, headed for the capital. Uh, even if your leader doesn't know how to fly, you'd better do it, because um, if you don't, it's all over. And that's the state of the country, right? Um, but the universities are even more, uh, considerably more, um, left liberal than the country. And if that's where you think the uh, country is, then you must think that the colleges and universities are decisively um, lost, and so you tend to dream less of reform than you do of arson. <laughs> right. So uh, the audience for the book is, is to a great deal conservatives, conservatives who may be otherwise uh, dismayed or, or just thoroughly estranged from the university. You're telling them, don't, don't give up. They... There, there, are, there are things to, to be done here. Yeah, th that is what I'm saying. Uh, I would I'd broaden my audience about a, a little bit. But I, I think um, that my audience would be almost anybody who takes an interest in, in higher education, which I think you know, co covers most of us. I'm going to have an audience of sort of fence-sitting um, academics in mind as well, who may be liberal, may be in the middle somewhere, um, but um, uh, trying to give them a sense of uh, what a defense of liberal education might look like. But yes, um, don't give up, um, conservatives. Uh, let me just give you uh, one example in the form of something of a story. Uh, so a story came out um, in the National Review 
at the uh, beginning of this year, so it was in January, and it was about Princeton. And uh, what had happened was there was a debating society at Princeton. I don't know if you heard this story, but it was brooded about a bit. And what had happened was, um, this became disputed later on, but let's stipulate that it happened. What had happened was this debating society had refused to um, invite George Will as a speaker because they considered him too hot to handle. Mm -hmm. And the uh, writer of this piece uh, took this as evidence that conservatives were being exorcised from campuses um, an editor that I worked with, um, who I quite like, shared the story and said, Stalin lives <laughs> at Princeton University. But the debating society, you know, it's a debating society that's been, been around for uh, quite a long time. And its entire purpose is, in a way, to bring together conservatives and liberals to debate um, and sometimes bring in speakers um, from each side. So, you know, just months before this George Will incident, they'd had in Ted Cruz, for example. Um, before that, they'd had in uh, Ken Buck. Um, he's uh, an alumni who's, who's in the house from Colorado, and Buck was already known for um, appearing in a video in which he, he brandished, I think it was, an assault rifle and dared Joe Biden and Beto work to come take it from him, right? So, and and th that's just the debating society. If you look at you know, Princeton more broadly speaking, they, they had in fact had George Will in as a baccalaureate speaker a couple of years before. Um, that's where the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions sits. That's headed up by a social conservative, Robbie George, who says that uh, Princeton is not a bad place to be a conservative for a student. So my point is, is that you know, quite often if you hear a terrible story about higher education, it's true, right? Um, but it's not the whole story. Right. And it's easy to respond to news reports, right? It's easy to take one, one example. I mean, I remember at Emory University, some kids got upset about chalk markings, uh, Trump 2016 on the sidewalk, and they marched over to the president's office. And the president did what all presidents do. He, he you know, he commiserated with them. He said, I, this is bad and it shouldn't happen. But, and it would have just blown over because it was, it was just, you know, eight or 10 students who, who, who just wanted to uh, act out a little bit. But it got picked up in the news and it became, it became an embarrassing story. For, for Emory and, and for the students. And you want to say, you know, these things often are, are uh, there's a better way to, to, to deal with these things, I think. But uh, it could be that conservatives are a little bit in a, you know, they're, they're in kind of a cycle uh, because they have been mistreated in, in higher education. I mean, have you sometimes despaired in your career over the anti-conservative bias in, in higher education? I wouldn't go so far as to say I've despaired, but, but I, I think there is um, an anti-conservative bias, and, uh, you know, both in the form of, of anecdote. I, I certainly know um, professors who have been subjected to disgraceful treatment, um, sometimes conservative, sometimes just dissenting middle-of-the-roaders. And we all know those anecdotes, but it does come from an imbalance, uh, at least in part from an imbalance at universities has grown somewhat worse 
since ancient times, the late 1980s when I was a student. So, you know, just taking four-year colleges and universities overall, the Higher Education Research Institute does a survey of faculty, and they find that uh, perhaps 12% of faculty members identify themselves as uh, conservative, and that's as many roughly as identify themselves on the far left. Um, forget about the liberals. So if you put together the conservatives and middle of the rotors at colleges and universities and throw in the vanishingly small portion of people who will say, I identify with the far right, that group is, is greatly outnumbered by liberals and far leftists, better than 60-40. And it was the other way around in the late 1980s. Uh, that is, if you threw the moderates in um, with the conservatives, they outnumbered the left liberal contingent. So, so that's new. And, and of course, it's going to lead um, to some bias and discrimination. There are surveys that will tell you that both liberals and conservative faculty members will sometimes openly admit, you know, other things equal. I am going to discriminate on the basis of ideology in judging a grant proposal and judging a hire or what have you. Both sides seem to be equally inclined to do it, at least in surveys, but because of the the disparity in numbers between left liberals and conservatives, of course, it's going to be the conservatives who are bearing the brunt of whatever discrimination is occurring. Um, so that strikes me as as a real thing. If we turn to liberal education, one of the phenomena you pick up on early in the book is that humanities professors don't seem to feel much conviction about the materials of, of their own field. Why is that? I think it's, it's, it's hard to say. I, I, I mean, the first explanation that comes to mind for me does have to do with politics. There's always been a contingent inside colleges and universities that um, have sought to turn them into bases for an assault on the centers of power. That's a quote from um, the Port Huron Statement, uh, an early statement, 1962, um, of the student movement. And, you know, that, that, that group, you find them in forthrightly politicized departments like ethnic studies, but they seem to have made some, some inroads into humanity. So I think that's, that's got to be part of it. But I, I think another part of it is just that it's... Uh, you know, it, it, it's not so easy to be devoted to liberal education. There, there are a lot of forces working against it. Liberal education, as I understand, is trying to shape reasonable people um, because uh, you're seeking to shape free people and to be governed by unexamined prejudices to be less than free. But we're partial and narrow people, and we're, we're, we're overcome with prejudices of various kinds. Some of them are prejudices of party. Some of them are prejudices of fashion. Um, that undoubtedly affects some um, humanists and other scholars. Some are prejudices connected to our interest. And so we're constantly fighting just to preserve some, some space um, for the shaping of reasonable people at colleges and universities always uh, seeking to prevent from being, you know, stuck in the attic, um, so to speak. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, 
an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. You turn for a while to the core requirements of liberal education. Maybe I should ask, what, what do core requirements typically look like at, at colleges and universities today? And what, what do you think is a, is a good model? Thanks. So I, I think that the core requirements come out of, of a worthy impulse, right? I said that we're, we're partial, narrow people, and what core requirements seek to do um, is to make us, us less narrow. They, they seek what uh, John Locke called comprehensive enlargement of mind. And usually that takes the form uh, of, of some kind of disciplinary requirement uh, that you need to do something from the humanities, you need to do something from the social sciences, you need to do something like the natural sciences because the world isn't known all in one way. Uh, and in, in some ways, that, that, that's usually just one from column A, one from column B, one from column C, and it's not really a core at all. It's more of the sort that we call distribution requirements. But even colleges that aspire to have more of a core often operate on that disciplinary model. They might have courses uh, like at Chicago that are courses just rather than selecting some individual course of 80 that are being offered um, in the humanities, you know, of course, in a single novelist, um, the courses are intended as, as sequences to introduce you to the study of the humanities or the social sciences or the natural sciences. And those courses, particularly ones in the humanities and the social sciences, often take seriously these disciplines do have foundational texts and history and fundamental questions they deal with, and you ought to know something about them. Um, but often things will be thrown onto the top of these core requirements, re reflecting, you know, concerns with other kinds of narrowness. You might say, well, you know, students are too parochial, so they should um, take a course that's, that's global or that focuses on uh, diversity. Or sometimes, you know, our, our narrowness is being too focused on the present, so um, students should take courses that focus on the past. Those might be courses that focus on, on the Western heritage. Those are, of course, um, increasingly rare. Sometimes it's conceived more, more universalistically. It's not necessarily to doing it because, you know, it's, it's our heritage, but somehow or another these old texts will be useful in helping us think through fundamental human questions, uh, whether we're from the West, the East, or somewhere in between. Then, you know, off to the side, um, there is a concern with skills that you might need to make your way in the world. Off to the side is the idea that human beings might have to, to grapple um, with fundamental questions that transcend um, their time and place. I'm inclined to think that the best kind of core does focus on questions and uh, I, I may be prejudiced because I'm at Ursinus College, and, and that's what our core does. It's built around the questions, uh, what should matter to me, how should we live together, how can we understand the world, and what will I do? And the advantage of, of forming your core around questions, I think, fundamental questions, is that uh, it's a discouragement to 
dogmatism, I think, and that has a real value um, to insist that what you're engaged in is some kind of inquiry um, rather than dispensation of a, of a wholesome set of truths, um, for example, it is a useful thing to have at universities, which are, I think, forever tempted to impose um, some some kind of position or, or correct mode of thinking on students. You say in Chapter 2, your phrase is, politics makes us stupid. What do you mean by that? In the Federalist Papers, uh, the defense of, um, or a defense of the Constitution, Alexander Hamilton says in the first paper, you know, even as he's writing a paper that's looking at the, the very possibility of establishing government based on reflection and choice, he says that in, in any matter of you know, great national deliberation, a, a torrent of angry and malignant passions will be let loose. And you know, simply speaking, we're not we're not really at our best when we're overcome by a torrent of angry, malignant passions, and we get engaged in a contest in which you know maybe in some sense we're smart. That is, we get very good at at, at poking holes in other people's arguments, maybe trying to uh, to beat them. But in order to succeed in a political struggle, generally speaking, you have to uh, distort your opponent's position. Generally speaking, you have to exaggerate, engage in hyperbole, a selective reading of the evidence, right? And we know politicians do this, but the funny thing is that people engaged in politics, you know, do it on Twitter and Facebook too. They act like press secretaries uh, for their political party. There's a kind of stupidity there, right? It's not the kind of stupidity where, where you've lost your capacity to reason or that you need to reread, you know, your logic textbook, but rather it's the stupidity that consists in, 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 in engaging reality through the prism of your partisan view, which means, for example, that you're going to tend to be attentive to evidence that speaks in favor of your position and try to ignore or dismiss evidence that speaks against it. And that, it seems to me, is a recipe for bad judgment. John Locke, again, we see but in part, and we know but in part, and therefore it is no wonder we conclude not right from our partial views. Politics uh, makes us emphatically see but in part, right? That's, that's partisanship. It can be more and less reflective, but it's a seeing in part. In Chapter 3, you've got another concept there entitled Constructive Shaming. What is constructive shaming? <laughs> well, so you know, I, I said before that um, I don't think we're necessarily looking at, at, at a skill defect, right, when we're thinking about people being unreasonable, right? So, you know, uh, partisans, uh, shills, press agents, bullshitters often possess critical thinking skills, you know, as much as anybody else, and, and, and sometimes more, right? They, they, they can often be quite good um, at arguing, certainly, sometimes frustratingly good at arguing. What it seems to me that they're lacking is the willingness to treat reason as an authority, and you're going to get tired of me quoting Locke, but I'll quote him at least one more time. 
right? I think the reasonable person is not so much the possessor of skills, although, of course, you need that too, uh, but the person who says to himself, there cannot be anything so disingenuous, so misbecoming, unbecoming. Anyone who pretends to be a rational creature as not to yield to plain reason and the conviction of clear arguments. So there is a kind of shame there, right? A, a, a kind of shame in, you know, returning to the argument that was just refuted the next day, for example, clinging to an argumentative lost cause. And it, it's hard to talk about shame at universities because shame is supposed to be a dirty word, but of course shame operates at universities in, in a variety of ways. And, you know, I'll, I'll name just two, uh, let's call them uh, loosely shame cultures, right? One is what, what you might call, uh, and, and uh, Mark Edmondson, who writes about education, I think does call it this, um, the culture of cool, right? And what that says is more or less that, that it's blameworthy to take anything very seriously. You might take success seriously, but, but, but you, you might pretend that you're not taking it seriously. And even if you take success in the quote-unquote you know, real world um, seriously, the idea of being carried away with a poem or a piece of literature or anything extraneous to that success, that's going to look shameful, right? Uh, why, why is a nerd derided? It's not because you know, the nerd's smart, it's because the nerd's, you know, too interested in the wrong sorts of things, you know, and that's a kind of culture that's appropriate for people who are sort of trying to bide their time for four years or however long it takes before they escape into the real world. And I, I think that still exists on campuses, although we think much more now of, you know, what's sometimes called call-out culture, right? Um, or cancel culture, I guess, is what we mostly call it now, where um, what's shameful is, is failing to be uh, on the right side of history. What's shameful um, is not embracing the cause or even just standing away, standing in the way of the cause or not embracing it fervently enough. Right? What's praiseworthy is the opposite of all of those things. So you have students and, and faculty members too, um, at least in, in, in the latter case, who are, are, you know, ha have a foot um, certainly um, in these shame cultures. And, and you know, you, you, you can't beat something with nothing. And reason is really quite fragile. And so you need a sense of what's praiseworthy and blameworthy, where what's, what's praiseworthy is um, a willingness to set party interest aside, right, uh, at least temporarily, and follow the arguments uh, where they lead for the sake of a good that the community has in common, which is um, attempting to get closer to the truth of the matter. Yeah. I think that's something a little bit different from, from critical thinking skills. It's, it's a motivation actually to use them, not just on other people who you're looking to make look bad, but on your own arguments. On the score of, of sort of the fragility of reason, you have a phrase later on, in the book, the unbearable opacity of students. Do you find that reaching students, that there, that there is a hardening or a, uh, a, well, an opacity in students, increasingly so? Let me back it up just a little bit and say that, that what I meant by that phrase isn't quite that, although I still want to get to your question because I don't want to hang too much on the phrase. Yeah, yeah. 
But what I mean by, by opacity, I'm picking up on something the, the political theorist uh, Ruth Grant says about why we need judgment. And she says, I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly, but something like the world always remains opaque to us in important respects. Right? And, and that's why we need to be able to judge in some way when reasonable people disagree about things. And so when I'm talking about the opacity of students, what I'm arguing is that we're entirely too confident that we know what's up with students and what they think, and we use what I think are relatively simple, simplistic generational analyses to try to understand them one way or another. So, but but I, I, I do think that there are some changes that have occurred in the relatively recent past that, that do bear on the exchange of ideas. And, and I'll name just, just, just one of them, and we can discuss it more if you'd like, but the Higher Education Research Institute also surveys students. They do an immense survey of first-year students. And they ask them a couple of questions that are, are speech-related. And one of those questions is, something to the effect of, do you think that colleges have a right to ban extreme speech um, or to keep extreme speakers off of campus? And, you know, they started asking that question in the late 1960s. And from the 70s on into the middle 80s, the people who agreed with that constituted around, you know, somewhere in the 20s of their sample, you know, the low to mid-20s, I think, for the most part. Then they stopped asking it for a while. Maybe they were demoralized by the New York Mets' victory in the World Series, which happened in 1986. And they started asking again in 2004. And I, I don't know why, and I, I'd be interested to hear what other people think about this, but, you know, at some point or another, you know, whether it was gradual or sudden, who knows, because they stopped asking for a while. That number, it almost doubled. It was the low 40s when they started asking again. What, why do you think that happened? Why did it double? The short answer is I, 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 I really don't know. It was, it was you know, that we're talking about a period where we can't even say exactly when it happened. But I, I, I do tend to... Um, agree, although not necessarily uh, with, again, the generational analysis they use, but with writers like um, Jonathan Haidt and and, and Greg Lukinoff, um, who argue that this has something to do with a growing sense that words harm, which which, which I think we always knew, that there uh, may be even a form of, of violence and that um, out of concern for the vulnerable, we need to do a better job at controlling what people say and even up to a point uh, what ideas they express openly. The big question then is, you know, drawing the line, right? What counts as violent speech and what, what, what doesn't? That's the big. That's the big difficulty, right? Well, yeah, but I, I think it is. Uh, it is the big difficulty, right? It's the difficulty that centers around. Yeah, you know, that used to center around uh, hate speech codes, and still comes up in discussions about trying to uh, control o o offensive speech. I mean, there's certainly no way, I think, suitably of defining hate speech that prevents you from restricting speech that you want to have um, in order to have. Um, a free exchange of ideas. I, I, I will say, though, that I, I think that in some ways our debate over free speech on campus centers too much on trying to find the right rule. Because you, you can have a very good set of rules and still not have 
much speech of interest going on on campus. You know, in fact, during during the period of time I described, right, it seems like things have gotten somewhat worse with respect to some student attitudes about speech. But at the same time, you know, the, the old speech codes have, have, to no small extent, been, been rolled back. There's been a lot of success at rolling back speech codes that, that really did seek to sort of carve out, okay, here's what hate speech is, and that, that's where we're going to stop. Um, those were pretty successfully challenged, uh, but both legally and uh, just through argument and persuasion. And yet, I don't think too many people would say that um, you know the, the, the quality or character of speech on campus has gotten a lot better. So, so there is a cultural matter here. And I think that part of it is not so much turning students into free speech warriors, which I don't think is our function at the university anyway, but you know, trying to understand that the impressions they, they may have coming in of the value of speech may not be so great. I, I mean, what if they observed, right? Uh, you know, talking head, screaming and trying to get the better of each other. Um, maybe they've watched their classmates who haven't done the reading, you know, talking in class, trying to uh, get some credit for it. And I think what, what students need is is a sense that there there is a speech that's not about puffing yourself up and it's not about getting the better of other people, but it's a speech that can be an aid to getting at the answers to, or probably it's better to say making progress um, with respect to questions that actually matter to you, that, that it's possible to make that progress. So the university needs to, to demonstrate that kind of speech and to usher students into um, the kind of community that, that, that practices it. And, and those students may not, you know, end up agreeing with the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education about the precise limits of speech, but they think they'll have um, more of a sense of the uh, the value of the speech and the, and the reason um, that you might take the risk, because there always are risks, I think, um, in participating um, in the free exchange of ideas. The book is Let's Be Reasonable, A Conservative Case for Liberal Education. Professor Jonathan Marks, thank you. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.